Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the news out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access. Or check out SubChina.com for all the original reported stories, op-eds, great regular columns, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. China's tech ecosystem is neither ahead nor behind that of the West. It is a parallel world. So writes my guest today, Lillian Li, a former venture investor now living in Shanghai, uh, recently in Beijing. It's a claim I am sure would resonate with many people who've spent time in both ecosystems, uh, and it's, it's something that I'm sure people in the U.S. or other Western countries who have even a glancing familiarity with China's tech world recognize, at least at the superficial level of uh, the Chinese version of, you know, fill in the blank, Google, the Chinese version of Twitter, the Chinese version of Amazon or YouTube or what have you. Uh, anyway, I have asked Lillian to join me today to chat about some of her big picture thinking about the tech ecosystem in China, the U.S., and uh, and more. Lillian, as I said, is an ex-venture investor who's been uh, with Eight Roads Ventures and Salesforce Ventures. She was also a co-founder of the nonprofit Diversity VC, She's currently in China refactoring, in her own words. Meanwhile, she's been publishing an always very thought-provoking substack on tech in China. You should subscribe to it. Check it out. It's really good. Lillian Lee, welcome to Seneca. Thank you for having me, Kaiser. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, uh, it's uh, long overdue. I've, I've wanted to have you on for a while. You, such an interesting perspective you take to things. Uh, let's share a little bit about yourself first. I mean, the, the different funds that you've worked with. Uh, and, and more importantly, what brought you to China? I mean, did you have any prior connection uh, with China? And what was it that made you decide to pack up and, and move to Beijing and then to Shanghai? Right. So uh, I was born in China and I left for Europe with my family when I was uh, eight and have oh, you know, eight. Wow. so have been there almost ever since until I came back to China last year. And my reason was predominantly around that, um, and, and I don't mean this to be a negative to my Western colleagues, was that every time I came back to China, I just felt the level of excitement potential in Chinese tech was very much surpassing a lot of what I was seeing in my pitch meetings in the West. Um, well, and, if you were only in Europe, then yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, well, I was in Europe, but, um, you know, Salesforce was relatively global. So I did make it out to the Valley, you know, on a regular basis to also see what was happening there as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I it's, it's it's a good point. I feel like, yeah, Europe does get uh, the short end of stick sometimes when we're talking about Western tech, but uh, I, I still think it has its own competencies, um, just like everywhere in the world, which we can delve mm -hmm. into. Um, but yeah, I think for me, it was the opportunity to, you know, partly personal, since um, I have always kind of wanted to experience what it's like living in China as a Chinese person of sorts. And the other point was professional of when I look out for the next 20 years, I feel like one of the most exciting tech cities in the world um, would definitely be in China, if not multiples of them being in China. And to be able to see that um, firsthand, to experience that firsthand was something that was very thrilling to me. And so that's what made me move. Hmm. And, and when was that? Just a few years ago, right? Uh, no, it was shorter. So last August. Oh, it was just last August. Yes. And were you somebody who had a, a 
sort of continuous connection with China as you were growing up? Were you somebody who kept the language and was, you know, sort of keeping up on current affairs in China, um, you know, reading media out of China? Or is this something that you sort of come to with almost fresh eyes? Um so definitely still kept the language. My parents had relocated back to China a few years back, so I would come and visit them every year. And definitely when I was growing up, every summer was uh, spent in languishing in Qingdao as I wondered what I was doing there. Um, and there in are terms worse of, places to languish. <laughs> there, there are worse places. There are worse places definitely than, than the seaside. So in terms of media and general cultural affairs, um, not as deeply. I had aspirations of becoming a development economist when I was younger. So I did a master's in develop international development, um, which gave me kind mm. of a bit more framework into how a theoretic framing of governance in China works. But I think apart from that, I have not been too into the weeds on the day-to-day -day aspect. And so when I landed in China, I knew Chinese, and I knew tech, but I didn't know too much about Chinese tech. So to answer your question, when I did start writing the news newsletter, it was very much kind of with fresh eyes. That's, I think, something that I am very excited about. I mean, your stuff feels fresh to me in, in many ways because you, you're not jaded, because you're not, you haven't been here and sort of seen it all. So, mm -hmm. I mean, so many of us who are in, in this or have been in this for so very long, uh, we don't often hear that fresh perspective, or when we do, it's too easy to dismiss because it comes from somebody who has no connection whatsoever, who can't mm -hmm. read the language and who doesn't understand what's being said, who wouldn't be able to use the products. And so, you know, it's a, a some guru from the valley who comes out and I can't take what they say all that seriously. Mm -hmm. But you have an interesting blended perspective. So it's very, very much worth listening to. Uh, I know you're not currently an active investor, at least not with a fund, but mm -hmm. you still look at the, the tech landscape in China with an investor's eye, is that fair mm -hmm. to say? Yeah. And I mean, that's almost not by choice, right? It's kind of what I was trained in. So if you told me not to look at it with an investor's eye, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Um. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, so no, I, I'm really keen to get a sense of then uh, the investment thesis then that, that drives what, what, what you do now, what goes through your head, you know, your sort of cognitive process as you look at China. Mm -hmm. uh, are there trends that you see currently underway that are, you know, maybe foremost in your mind? in terms of, of how you would or do uh, or, or might invest in China? Yeah, it's a very interesting question because I think just taking a step back, what I've observed is that China is very much at the end of one installation-based era and looking for the next one. And installation-based, I don't know whether we're going too deep into baseball, is kind of the you know grounding layer of um grounding hardware layer that enables a lot of innovation to happen. And for the sure. past, I would say maybe decade plus, just like in the West, that has been the mobile, right? That's been the um, hardware installation. And that has fueled the growth of a whole myriad of consumer companies, Meituan, Alibaba, Tencent, all of these, Pinduoduo, you know, all of these giants that we know today. And that's at saturation right now. Exactly. That's at saturation right now. And and 5G rollout hasn't been all that it was, you know, sort of promised to be. I think promised and also, to be, right? Yeah, and I think 5G rollout it's um it's it's an enablement, but it's not a technology platform, uh, not yet at least. I mean, 5G is technically meant to enable the spread of um, IoT, right? right. But we haven't seen uh, too much installation of 
IoT sensors across the ecosystem, uh, even if it does, it's only really relegated to the home. It's not embedded into manufacturing facilities where I think that's the real potential of IoG, uh, even though there's been a lot of chat around it. So it's been an interesting time, I think, right now as I look ahead, because I think the consumer internet age is coming to, if not an end, definitely a good slowing down period in China, but no one's... A plateau, yeah. A plateau, indeed. Uh, but for you know what's going to come next, whether that be enterprise SaaS or enterprise service, as it's called in China, or whether it would be the industrial internet enabled by 5G and IoT, or whether it would be kind of these edge uh, or deep tech capabilities such as edge computing, semiconductors, you know, deep AI, that is still very much up in the air. And we've seen directions moving in all of these areas I've mentioned from an investment perspective. But I think everyone is anxious to a certain degree about where is that coming though i would also balance that with kind of saying you know at the end of the day people do fundamentally believe there is that optimism that you know china will figure these things out but uh, you know the immediate direction is not clear at all right right right. it doesn't sound like particularly promising or or optimistic premise (laughs) though to suggest that yeah it's all coming to an end what about what do you do with and people who who you you've invariably met and who inevitably will say to you ah but there is you know consumer upgrade that's happening um, mm-hmm. and then here you know here's examples a b and c of that i mean that seems to be sort of the 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 investment thesis that's been buoying a lot of vc activity in china in, in the last 3 or 4 years yeah mm, yeah retail upgrading is Definitely true, but you know, retail upgrading probably impacts the majority of consumer goods. So we're going to be talking about makeup, really. You know, the perfect diary is an example of this, or we will be talking about you know specific day to day usage of fast moving consumer goods. Perhaps certain verticals like education, maybe healthcare, but they are not in themselves traditional tech, quote-unquote, tech sectors. Um, sure. That's yeah, I, was, I was speaking strictly of tech. I mean, even within mm-hmm. tech, mm-hmm. there is this thesis. But, you know, let, let's come back to this. I mean, because yeah. actually that's something that I wanted to talk to you after we get through some of your other sure. sort of big theses. But that's a really important place to start. We're at the end of, of basically one era of an installed base uh, where the other hasn't shown up yet. Mm-hmm. Con- the consumer story seems, according to you, to be you know, if not played out, then at least mm-hmm. slowing down a whole lot. And mm-hmm. and you're turning your attention now to, and so is China, really, to other areas where there could be sort of some still substantial kind of, you know, quantum breakthrough. So Lillian, I want to talk to you about a really interesting assertion that I've heard you make on, on more than one occasion. Um, you see the big technology companies, and, and presumably not just the big tech companies in the U.S., but globally, as as institutions because of their increasing role in in making the rules and in, in setting norms and you see them basically taking over from the incumbent institutions including you know government and and the traditional media i actually should confess that just before we started taping i was in a room on clubhouse listening to andrew ross sorkin and kevin roos talking about what tech doesn't get about the media this battle between the incumbent and, and the upcoming, you know, tech challengers is is a, a late motif, I think, from for a lot of what's happening in the world right now. Anyway, but take some time here, Lillian. Spell out what your claim mm-hmm. is, um, sticking for the time being to you know how you see this happening in the West before mm-hmm. we broaden it and then look at China as well. Institutions, yeah. mm-hmm. institutions, um, technology as institutions, right? Right. So technology as institutions, I think it's uh, a very 
seemingly f- a broad and fuzzy concept. Um, so let's put some definitions around it. So institutions, I go by the kind of conical Douglas North's definition, which is that institutions um, are the informal and formal rules of the game that shapes and constrains human behavior, right? So I think traditionally we might think of institutions as, say, a school or maybe a media company. But I think this goes maybe a bit one level deeper in the sense of, you know, how how is this incentivizing your behavior almost on a daily basis? So I think that's a more abstract way of looking at it. But but I think I'm not sort of, one thing I do want to distinguish is I, I'm not advocating that technology companies will end up, you know, having their own defense uh, legions that will, you know, take <laughs> on the role of uh, the Le- Leviathan governance state. But I think why I introduced this framing in the first place was looking at the discussions that's been had around technology and regulation. And it felt that there was a very big piece missing in terms of how we conceptualize these organizations. I think in the discussions, they have been called platforms or they've been, you know, worst case, been called monopolies. But those are very economic terms, right? To Or very a, a framing of utility and their functions or their economic capacity. Right. It doesn't really get into the multifaceted way in which they actually controls and uh, allocate power. And I think the idea of technology as institutions, you know, organizations uh, that sets the rules of the game, that sets incentives for how individuals interact with each other and how organizations interact with each other is a bit more holistic. And I think it perhaps gives us a wider framing for why there needs to be, quote unquote, a curtailing of the power. Because I think, especially in the West, there's been a general understanding that you know private companies are subjected to the force of the market. If something is someone is doing something good, if they're making excess rents, other companies will come into the space, they will compete, and then rents will and, and profits will become normalized. So you know what you really want to do is just keep the private markets to themselves. Just let let the private markets do their thing. But it is really the uh, public institutions, the governments that needs to be watched because their power is unfettered and they right. really need to be kept in check. And I think this idea of technology as institutions, what I'm really trying to describe is really trying to be more holistic about the level of power and influence that these private organizations actually have, which has really taken them out of the private market domain and very much into the public, right? I think um, you know if it wasn't a concern for everyone now, the fact that a small group of technology platforms can come together and say, hey, we will de-platform the former president of the United States and make sure this person never gets you know, any any kind of voice. And you know, even though they have their reasons, I think that is a very um, salient example of the power that's at the disposal of these seemingly private actors. And I was think, this an idea that was already cooking with you before the deplatforming of Donald Trump? Yes, yes. So okay, I think right. this very much came, you know, from my background where I was, a, as, as I said, I was an aspiring development economist, you know, almost a decade mm-hmm. ago, and that's when I read the seminal works that informed a lot of these kind of frameworks. Um, and I went back and sort of reread them almost just to make sure that I wasn't kind of losing the plot when I was encountering these technology organizations and I, I couldn't quite put my finger on what I felt about them versus how the rest of the world was labeling them. 
So th- there's this great paper by Asamonglu and co written in uh, 2005 that traces institutions' long-term impact on economic growth. It's almost like a seminal paper in this field. It delineates between political institutions and economic institutions. Uh, mm-hmm. But interestingly enough, it also delineates between de jure political power and de facto political power. So de jure right. political power is the political power given to groups by the existing political institutions. So in the West, that would be you know, the Senate, uh, Congress, or House of Parliament, if we're talking about the UK. But it's interesting that de facto political power is really um, power accrued to groups of individuals that are not technically in the political domain, but they have amassed that through concentration of resources. And the de facto political power of these actors can then in turn influence future political institutions and therefore future economic institutions. And I think that's an observation of what we're seeing here is that because of the way network effects has manifested for internet com- uh, internet companies in a way that I think traditional economics have not been able to fully capture um, because one of the key tenets it violates is this diminishing marginal return theory, whereas for right. most internet companies, it's increasing marginal return, right? So um, right. once we get past that, then network effects has enabled a very small group of players to have a huge control of resources, which then has enabled them to have outsized de facto political power, which then influences a whole set of other political institutions and economic institutions. And I think to really account for that, you know, we, we can talk about de facto political power, but maybe a better way to think about how these organizations operate is really to call them technology as institutions. Because in many domains of a person's day-to-day life, they are almost in charge of providing more essential information for the individual than their governments. You know, when we are trying to find out information for how to go to a doctor, we Google. When we're trying to see news, we go on Facebook or Twitter. You know, it's they have an immediate one-to-one relationship with users that right. guides and shapes how they go about their world. I think in a way that political institutions has never been able to. And to just say that these are platforms or tools or you know mon- economic monopolies, I don't think really captures the depth of their influence. It's interesting that we're seeing a critique of this usurpation of some of these loci of, of, of de facto power, of institutional power by these tech companies coming both from the left and from the right, mm-hmm. from the right, you know, and be well in, in in large part because it's their boy who is deplatformed, and mm-hmm. you know suddenly there's this sort of right libertarian uh, kind of argument about free speech that's that's really coming. But you know, it's not entirely absent from the left either. Mm-hmm. It's you know something that the uh, organizations uh, like the American Civil Liberties Union have have taken up as well. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's, it's fascinating. Uh, one of the the things that you know, arguably, they have in part usurped also is foreign policy. Mm. Uh, I think that you know, to to a very great extent, um, internet companies in the United States they have a, a pretty pronounced role these days in the way that uh, public opinion about foreign policy is forged. What are the implications uh, of this of of institutions being usurped by by these powerful technology companies 
so, something I tweeted out was, you know, we used to talk about having world governments and now we have world platforms, right? And I think that is very interesting as we take a step back and say, hey, once we look at these technology platforms as institutions, we suddenly realize Facebook is setting the content policy for a third of the world, uh, right. Twitter a bit less than that. Um, this is scales of coordination that we've never really been able to achieve in uh, the diplomatic sphere. And we have seen that come together in the technology sphere. And I think the implication of that is a real erosion probably of national sovereignty, right? Because um, developing countries now don't, I mean, their online content moderation space sits in Silicon Valley. That's been decided by a group of PMs, uh, you know, maybe upper middle class, maybe mostly white, who's never really heard of their country, might not never have, you know, haven't been, haven't heard of their country. And right. I, so what, what a Burmese nationalist can say about the Rohingya, what exactly. a Hindutva nationalist can say about Muslims or yes. uh, about Jammu and Kashmir, that is being determined not uh, in, in Yangon. It's not being determined in Delhi. Mm-hmm. It's being determined in Mountain so, View. Exactly. It's there. And or, by, I'm sorry, East Palo Alto. <laughs> East Palo Alto by a group of folks who probably haven't, I wouldn't say they won't have not th- thought as deeply, but within the local context, it's very hard to understand what um, the implications are in such different global contexts. And also, even taking the chance that they do understand by some magic property, <clears throat> you then have to balance that between every other different contextual um, situations that you're dealing with around the world and then come up with a relative level that you're saying will bl- apply blanketly across the world, which, you know, um, you're, you're adopting, again, this one-size-fits-all policy that the IMF and the World Bank was trying to do in the olden days when they're trying to spur growth around the world to sort of say, hey, this thing seems to work for us and therefore it should work for you. So um, The obvious holdout, the obvious gigantic exception, of course, is China. Of course, yes. And I think... Um, I th- I think China was very prescient in their realization of technology as institutions. And I think their move to curb and control and regulate technology firms from a very early stage was a manifestation of this understanding that this wasn't a question of you know, competition with the West, but this was a matter of national sovereignty in the long run. And I think that has been proven right to, um, as we look at it in, in 2021, is that at the end of the day, they, they do have firm control over, you know, things that will influence th- their internal domestic conversations, people's, uh, uh, people's um, you know, for better or for worse, people's uh, thoughts and actions, but they have ownership of that dialogue, but uh, rather, I mean, that that was that an emergent property? Is that was that just something they lucked into because you know what their immediate the immediate problem in front of them was preventing you know social instability it was preventing uh, the use of these internet platforms for large destabilizing gatherings. It was the use of this to uh, prevent online opinion uh, from consolidating in ways that that you know were detrimental 
to the Chinese Communist Party's continue to hold on power. It was, I mean, you know, the, that was the immediate goal mm-hmm. of it. No, mm-hmm. I, I don't. Was it the case? Do you think that that people were sitting down and thinking through uh, what was really happening globally with the the, the power that Facebook and and uh, and and Google had arrogated to themselves? So I think it's going to be a combat. Well. I typically think it's a combination of both. Um, definitely, yeah, sure. it's the paradox in China is that you can never plan for the long term in China, and yet everyone is thinking ten years ahead. So, um, I would not be uh, I would not be surprised if the conversation in those rooms went. You know, there's an immediate uh, threat to certain things that might not be uh, beneficial. So certain actions need to be taken. But I think something I've been struck by when I do have conversations with people on the ground is how uh, long-term people are really thinking and it would not surprise me at all if conversations were had where, where people were saying well let's see how this if if this plays out on the scale we think it plays out what are the implications of that and what is the implication of that for us but neither is it the case that china has completely prevented its big technology platforms from you know challenging its incumbent institutions as well i mean obviously it's not threatening the 92 million member, you know, Chinese Communist Party, mm-hmm. you know, the highly developed bureaucracies or the party controlled media to that huge of an extent. But you do make the claim that institutions in China are immature or weak or underdeveloped. Um, I, I don't see them all. I mean, I'm sure you don't mm-hmm. either as seeing them all mm-hmm. as underdeveloped, but there certainly are underdeveloped institutions. Uh, and we've seen internet companies step in and try to rewrite rules or try to write rules afresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, that hasn't always gone over well with mm-hmm. the more, you know, overdeveloped mm-hmm. uh, institutions mm-hmm. that you have, especially the political ones, the ones that still hold a monopoly on on coercion, on violence in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where are where are the Chinese internet companies or the Chinese technology companies rewriting rules and becoming institutions under themselves? Yeah, so I think actually just to go back and push back against your point of uh you know the the tech giants haven't really sort of changed Chinese society um or Chinese governance structures that much i think it has when you look at the online spaces that has been created for people to have conversations as much as the chinese government tries to control it it is a forever evolving game i think i've been also very impressed by kind of how people's desire to have conversations and the sort of senses control over that desire is always uh, an ever-evolving game things get taken down but they get made into a meme and then references are, are made in allusion to other things so it's, it's, it's a very sophisticated online language that's been developed in chinese internet around certain topics sure. and i think you know it has opened up drastically new spaces for conversations um that amazed me Right. There's conversations happening about LGBT online. There's conversations happening about feminism. There is conversations happening about a whole host of what I would have traditionally considered very woke Western topics, but they are happening on the Chinese um, internet. And I don't think you know all of them have been rubber stamped approved by the Chinese government. So no, indeed not. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I think I, that- you're absolutely right. I don't mean to suggest mm-hmm. that there is no deliberation, that there mm-hmm. is no you know uh, there's no public sphere whatsoever. But yeah. it's circumscribed, right? For sure, for sure. And I think what I would describe the, um, maybe this is jumping ahead, the the relationship between Chinese technology platforms and Chinese uh, governance uh, institutions is this kind of tension. It's a symbiotic 
uh, relationship, but there is also conflict at the same time. And, you know, to go back to how we came to this initially, China is still a developing country. It still sees itself as a developing country. And the key attributes of developing countries is that their institutional and governance frameworks typically aren't as mature as Western quote-unquote, or more developed uh, countries. So I think the clearest examples of this and where, you know, subsequently technology institutions stepped in to fill a gap was really with uh, Ant Financials in the early days or Alipay in the early days, as it was known then, and the lack of a credit system in China, which meant credit card wasn't widely available nor adopted. And so you had a generation of people that was very much cash only. And Alipay saw the opportunity and, um, you know, worked with a number of banks to basically digitize uh, and and create the pipes uh, and the rails for payment so that there could be firstly a cohesive settlement structure. So a clearing bank, something which is very foundational to um, any banks, um, any sort of finance system in the West, but was non-existent until uh, Alipay kind of stepped up to do that in China. So first of all, was that. And then secondly, using the data that they gathered from various credit transactions. And also, um, you know, if you're a merchant, your selling history, your stock inventory. And if you're a customer, your buying history, maybe your browsing history, all of these aggregating together to create um, these what they call Sesame credit scores, so the equivalent of you know a FICO or Experian credit score, um, so that they could use these credit scores to give credit to folks, be it an SMB or a individual, right? So those are functions that we would traditionally expect, firstly, of either the government or banks. But since they have or, been, or banks, not or necessarily banks. the Sorry, government, government, which is Sorry. which is my, my point. Which is, they 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 are the prerogative of, of mm-hmm. banks and financial institutions. Mm-hmm. They are not. I mean, in, at that point, they hadn't really gone beyond what was actually helpful and which was within the sort of acceptable bounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, they weren't issuing fiat currency. They weren't uh, actually acting as a lender at mm-hmm. that point. Mm-hmm. But when yeah. they started to do that, mm-hmm. when they started to actually lend, mm-hmm. uh, you saw that, that things changed very abruptly, right? So, uh, yes, and uh, yes and no. So they 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 were starting to lend for a number of years before you know the abrupt kind of IPO pull happened last year, and I think even before then there has been a few hiccups. It wasn't purely lending, but when you actually dig into the structure, what they were doing was that they were lending and they were collateralize that uh, debt and then selling it on a security. That's right. And then they were doing that a hundred times over. So they were highly leveraged lending. So, you know, I I think that's that's a slightly different story when you get into the weeds and saying, oh, Ali started lending, trying to be be a bank, and then they got shut down. No, it was Ali was trying to essentially start Collateral, yes. Exactly, a subprime mortgage. CDOs, right? Exactly, in in China. And then uh, the regulators were like, no, we we saw how this went in the uh, financial crisis. This is creating systemic risk. Um, At a time when deleveraging was the the, the tune that was being called. For sure. So that was a very uh, quickly shut down. And then I think this time around again, with the capital requirements for Ali to hold, then it's... Um, a deeper question of, you know, how much systemic risk are we introducing if we allow this to be um, widely adopted? Because right. at the end of the day, Al, um, Ant is saying that they do not 
getting involved in any of the subsequent um, underwriting or you know uh, default of the loan aspect. All they do is just provide data on the customers, and then the lender themselves, the banks themselves, can make that decision. Also, a lot of the lenders themselves are actually semi semi gray banks, which are not really authorized. So, again, that also Im- impacts the um, I guess the financial stability of um, a lot of ecosystem. I guess when you take back and take a step back and think about it about it from the position of a regulator. So you have a tech company that's not really having skin in the game, uh, selling credit um, or credit information, credit kind of low information to uh, gray banks who might not be well regulated or and and might not have access to these customers otherwise, but they're kind of enabling that ecosystem to to be alive while this model is operational. I'm not saying, you know, that whole um, event didn't have other motives. I'm sure it did. But I also just want to bring this narrative, you know, higher up in people's consciousness to say there are actually decent financially sound reasons for why for a developing country who, again, governance structures are weak. And therefore, what you actually often end up with is suboptimal governance structures, because in in, in the world of kind of second best actions where we can't, you know, create very precise governance tools to really target the specific issues, often we have to settle for kind of more blunt tools. Um, often, I, I think that's often what I think about when I see kind of Chinese regulators, they'll sort of wait around, see how things develop, and then maybe take a firmer and harsher line than they right. probably needed. Um, firstly, because Time to pull out the old sledgehammer. Right? <laughs> exactly. Well, but, well, yeah. but the, the point is that we, we've seen now very clear instances where the state will defend its prerogative to, to define and, and to control some of the really vital institutions, right? I mean, and, mm-hmm. it, and you know, more broadly, it's it's very much alive, I think we've, we agree, to the threat from big tech, whether it's Western big tech or it's domestic big tech. Mm. Um, I mean, we see this in still the, the ability, I mean, in spite of what you said, you know, the, the kind of freewheeling conversation that does go on, but still mm-hmm. maintains, you know, pretty strict censor- for sure. censorship for controls. Sure. For sure, for sure. Um, right. And I mean, the, the crackdown on micro lending is, you know, something uh, as you've, you've complicated it, of course. But I think that's anywhere, any place where Internet companies are really sort of usurping really key functions of state, they haven't allowed it to. And, you know, they've also been very good about using um, the the technologies that have been developed mm-hmm. uh, to f- to further uh, central government institutional ends. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yes. You know, the, the, you know, the the little red app mm-hmm. is, is a very good example of that. Um, so I, I think we're talking then about an interesting. I mean, it's it's the the, the mental map I see right now uh, is is interesting because you do have sort of you know Facebook, Google uh, extending tentacles, the whole thing. You know, I think extending tentacles uh, throughout all sorts of pieces of you know, our culture, our society, our media. Uh, you know, usurping aspects of of of, of government, but not in China, or not so much in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, where? How does this play out? I just can't imagine that there are going to be a lot of people all nodding their heads as you say, "Oh, the Chinese were prescient. It wasn't a good idea to uh, to give them so much rain and to let them just sort of ride roughshod over uh, our 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 precious institutions." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just I don't think that many people are going to find that to be an attractive alternative um yeah i don't think it's i I think what the current framing for me is just you have 
um, almost a spectrum of two extremes, right? You have almost the, the US, which is quote unquote un unfettered conversations happening everywhere around on these platforms. And uh, you have a Chinese internet, which is much more tightly controlled and a more symbiotic relationship between the platforms and the um, central governance um, organizations. And I think the interesting thing for me will be looking at where the rest of the world will end up throwing, um, and or not not so much throwing, where the rest of the world will end up deciding what is optimal for them. And I think it needs to be a case of, um, you know, context specific decision for each of them, yeah. uh, because I think they've kind of seen the outcomes, and then I think the biggest conversation a lot of countries will be having within themselves is we've seen how the US has gone that doesn't look very appealing so that and that is our current default so how do we move away from that and what I do see is probably the pendulum swinging back from this kind of more globalized uh, platform sphere to maybe more nationalized um, fragmented conversation sphere where people are you know pushing more social platforms that's native to say India or Indonesia um, or Latin, you know parts of, or, or Brazil right having these kind of bubble of enclaves um, of this is our our platform made for ourselves that has no influence through um, the tech companies of other countries um, that we can really own our own conversations there. I think especially as people um, do realize the inherent um, apoliticalness of platforms is turning out to be an illusion. I think that's, that's you know, realistic for Europe, mm. for countries that have sort of the wherewithal, the, you know, the, the, the mature institutions and the the ability to resist, uh, but I think a lot of countries are going to find themselves unable to do anything, mm -hmm. uh, unable to really have viable yeah. either local alternatives. You know, looking to China, mm -hmm. I've seen, for example, in Vietnam when I was working for Baidu and I went, went to, took a few trips to Vietnam to talk to them. They were all all eager to get Baidu in there, mm -hmm. not because they, they particularly liked Baidu. It's just that they wanted something to counterbalance what they felt was like the irresistible power of the big American platforms. And they felt they, they weren't able to, to block them. And when they did, you know, people easily got around them and they understood that there was huge political capital that they'd have to expend if they wanted to block them. Uh, so they were all about courting, you know, Baidu, which was, which was an odd you know, position to find ourselves in. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it, it really it depends very much on on the autonomy and the, the, the power of, of the state we're talking about. There are a lot that will not be able to exercise any kind of real agency, I fear. Uh, yeah, but, uh, but sadly, that is also true in many other spheres of, uh, of that uh, country's life. You know, again, I perhaps pattern match too much on... Uh, my sort of development history, but um, that was also the case with trade. A lot of countries did not have the agency to implement tariffs, even though when that was actually a good choice for them to um, right. protect their local manufacturing capabilities. Yeah, you you kind of see a similar incident where countries might group together to gain political clout, but at the end of the day, is these kind of superpower and hegemon reign supreme in in the economic sphere, and I think now in the technology sphere too. Well, this is just a fascinating topic, and I could go on all night about this one. Uh, but I, I do want to focus um, the bulk of the rest of our conversation 
on this really great idea that you have that there are these two parallel worlds that I open open this with. There are these quite different realities, and these different realities produce, as you put it, different foundational principles. Uh, let's talk about what these different realities are. I mean, we've 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 alluded to some of them, uh, but I think for the tech world, I think either of us can think of a whole bunch of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe starting with this the sheer size of the market. Yeah. One thing that I've heard people say, I'm not 100 percent sure how I come down on this, but that there's, I mean, not only is it it's a gigantic market, of course, but it's also a lot less segmented than markets that you find, uh, for example, in the United States. There aren't so many subcultures, for example. I mean, there's that one huge differentiation between you know, the upper-tier urban, mm-hmm. but it's really sort of between those and the rest. And it it almost feels like there's always a major winner that you can have in every product category uh, for each of these two you know, very different market segments. So you can have you know, a, a bike dance and a kwaisho. You can have, mm-hmm. you know, in, uh, a JD and a pindodo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I, I, how do you feel about that, that, that this idea that there's uh, not substantial, you know, market differentiation in China? I'm just trying to think through my own biases because obviously to me, who is someone who's quite new, everything is different. But is that just because I've just taken the fact that Europe speaks to more than 10 languages sure. uh, for for a fact? And, uh, you know, that's very normal to me. But China, um, which has lots of different dialects and different customs and, you know, different nuances and class structures in different cities is is just very, um, it, you know, is that is that more of a... Um, if, if that more different, I think it is right because I think what I have even observed in my time here is that yes, there is a, a general you know national language, but when you're talking on the scale of 1.4 billion people, and I go back and I say, what does that mean? That means the size of Europe. That means the size that that means Europe plus US plus Latin America plus Australia, and even more than the population of all of those regions combined. Right. So you're talking right. about a country that has that many people, and you're talking you know, about um, a whole different range of coastal versus inland versus old versus modern, right? Um, and and you can sort of draw the tier one, tier two, and kind of the lower tier cities. But I think those are really simplifications. And I think you, you do see this bifurcation, not, not sorry, not even bifurcation, but this kind of f- fragmentation when you do get down to, to preferences. Um, so... Yeah, I I think at mm. the end of the I, day... I can see a case for that. Yeah, yeah and, and I think at the end of the day, just because you have seen a winner now doesn't mean they will stay the winner in the future. And I say this because I think when you didn't have choice, you know, maybe Taobao was the best thing ever, right? If you're coming from a position where the only thing you had access to was your corner shops and your high street in a village in Hunan, then everything else that you can have access on the internet suddenly seems like it's the best thing ever. But as you bec- as that becomes your new normal, then you start thinking, hey, why isn't my platform catering to my local preferences, my local you know, food consumption, my local culture, right? And I think um, in the future, potentially, as we sort of get to the tail end of consumer internet in some sense, and what happens is when you get to the end of, uh, of these SKF specialization happens, uh, optimization happens, we focus on efficiency, we focus on really, you know, trying to extract the last um, 
squeeze the last drops out. Squeeze the last drops out of the consumer utility, right? We will see this kind of deep understanding of consumer local preferences. And I think um, what you will have see is, you know, a move away from this uh, more homogenous platform, um, at least approach, uh, and be it, you know, maybe even within on these platforms, but with very sophisticated AI that creates incredibly bespoke, curated um uh, product lines and and content yeah. uh, for everyone, which which I think we're already seeing with Douyin. I think I think that's the um, that's the kind of a sign of things to come. But you know, to to sort of come back to your original question, I think there is a lot of diversity in China. I think it's just not very obvious um, when when you're looking at it from the first time. Yeah, I, I like this idea. That this is an inevitable stage now that things are starting to plateau and differentiation and increased market mm-hmm. segmentation is really the only path. To, to grow with uh, it's out of necessity mm-hmm. they, they yeah. haven't had to do it in the past right exactly yeah I think that's my another theme of uh, you know chi- Chinese people have had it quite good right. for a while right. even though they don't realize they've had it quite good yeah. for a while so everything just seems like a, a terrible thing now but it's, it's actually very good compared to the rest <laughs> of the world so um, related to the gigantic population the relatively low cost of labor and maybe related to that just the mm. availability of just you know of fantastically inexpensive logistics uh, that has enabled yes and um, that that's created a very very different you know market reality in China yeah yes for sure and I think that's actually um, a huge huge thing because when we talk about how is this going to scale in Western tech contexts and I you know when I say Western tech I mean Europe and, and US we always implicitly say, we can't hire enough people with this money that I've just given you to to build out this operation. You know, like, you know, people is people are limited, labor is limited, labor is pricey. So that's always going to be the bottleneck to scaling. Um, and therefore, you're always thinking about how to do things that scale, aka how to do things with a minimal input of labor and maximum efficiency of that labor. And I think that drives a lot of behavior in both consumer tech and definitely enterprise tech. You're always trying to, you right. know, um, duplicate the efforts of uh, of a single person whereas because as i've mentioned china is such a huge population that single constraint is no longer the case you know there are more developers here than there are in europe they're cheaper they're well trained um they are you know sadly kind of a, a bit more disposable than they are mm-hmm. in the west and and i think that that's a feeling everyone sees so um when there are when you're talking kind of a world where there's you know no constraints where there's no constraints on money there's no constraints on labor there's no constraints on technology then uh everyone feels entitled to go into any any kind of segment right there is no limits on what you can achieve hey if you when when you, everyone's almost adopting the amazon playbook and say what we really need to do if there are no constraints is to go after the really really hard things right. to build because at least the only mode we will have is that we will know these things are hard to build, which is why you see so many people moving into massive logistics fleets and management of these massive um, logistics fleets here, which, um, you know, firstly, they can afford because they have the money, they have the labor. And secondly, it's it's hard to um, get right on day one for a lot of other Is this going to be, though, like so, that, yeah, you know, that it, it was relatively easy? There weren't these constraints, just like with this market differentiation thing. Is this something mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Uh, now... As labor is getting tighter now, as labor is getting more expensive, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. because it's getting tighter, that's going to change. That considerations yeah. are going to change, and and that that you can no longer just assume scale because, uh, you know, labor is just such a, a negligible 
factor? Uh, yes and no. Um, so definitely, when I look out for the long run, and you know, Chinese tech also talks about this "renkou、uh, hongli," this demographic dividend is、right. diminishing, disappearing entirely, and especially given the recent stats about falling birth rate, that is、uh, definitely not going in the right direction. So yes, in in the future, labor will not be this abundant、uh, resource that everyone can、um, you know just access. But right now. And at least in the next five years, it still is relative to the demand for this labor, and so、um, we're definitely going to see a transition period where you know the light bulb moment comes on and people switch different modes. But currently, that's that's not so much the case, and I think that's also、um, you know. So I think what you would see is a tampering of the really crazy behaviors you saw maybe three or four years ago、um, with. Delivery drivers, mo- you know, mo- mobile fleets,、um, almost this kind of very casual wastefulness.、Mm-hmm. But it hasn't really been replaced、um, currently by this singular focus on upgrading the workers, making sure they're happy, making sure they're productive. You know, that 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 sort of framework of、uh, using your workers as your most precious resource has sadly not entered the Chinese tech market. Well,、um, you know, you have though afflicted the breakdown of this Faustian bargain. That tech workers have made with their、mm-hmm. employers,、um, this revolt that we've recently seen against nine nine six culture.、Uh, I'm, I'm curious how、mm-hmm. that's being perceived in the VC industry.、Uh, you know, it's an industry where I think one of, one of the best known venture capitalists, Michael Moritz、uh, from Sequoia, he famously praised、mm-hmm. China's whole nine nine six work ethos、mm-hmm. in an op-ed that he wrote in Financial Times just a、mm-hmm. couple of years ago.、Uh, how's that working out? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to.、Uh, well. Um, do I sell out my former industry? <laughs> no, I mean I think it's interesting because I mean that yeah, that is yeah, no, just no. the sort of constraint on on this that we're, we're that you know you're warning about. Yeah, for sure,、um, and and definitely that's is the constraint is you know the the reasons that fed into nine nine six as population decreases as kind of the dividends of consumer internet diminishes so. You know, it's just no longer given that you can work for three or four years and buy a house in a tier one city off the back of that, as you have a new generation、right. of people coming into the workforce, Gen Zers, who have been raised in relative abundance all their life and been told by their parents that you know they're great and you know more more Western than they have been Chinese in many sense. They also don't they're they're puzzled by this kind of more traditional. Chinese approach, I would say, to sort of you know work hard, eat bitterness, chukul, so you can so so you can just you know because that that's what people did. Often Chinese people don't even need a justification to to work very hard. They just feel like that that's that's、right. a done thing. It's、um, its own reward. Exactly,、right. you know, you know, in, in it there is inherent worth in, in working very hard. So I think that set of calculus is slowly changing for everyone. And when I talk to I think it depends by、um, you know who you're talking to. When when I'm talking to someone who's kind of in their mid thirties and they're you know programmer role, these people often have families and they're kind of locked into that lifestyle, so they feel relatively helpless.、Um, they understand it's not ideal. They feel anxious anxious about you know the the thirty five year old cap. So so the joke is you know when、uh, as when you're thirty five, all of these big tech platforms sat down and sits you down and say if you haven't hit a certain Position in the、um, certain level in these companies, you you basically get kicked out, and so you know the the joke in Chinese tech upper is, out exactly right, exactly upper out is you know at twenty you're a entry level software developer at you know thirty you are a、uh, you know maybe 
group uh, group PM, and then at you know thirty six, you're a DD driver because you've just got kicked out of the company. Um, <laughs> so so that's the career yeah, acceleration. So cruel. Exactly, it's it's, uh, it's kind of quite quite bloodless in many sense. So I think for for them, they they do feel helpless. But since so much of their um, life has been invested in this, this is not uh, easy. Um, other exit options for them. And I think for the younger generation, you know, more of them are either voting with their feet and, you know, going and, and do kind of voicing concerns about culture and aspect. But I think it's, um, I think it is a case where it's, it's almost like a market failure, right? Everyone's kind right. of locked in this 996 because everyone and we haven't talked too much about this. I think one of the enabling conditions is that because of this ma- massive market, everyone feels like they are existing in a scarcity world, which is very right. different from the abundance mindset that you have in Silicon Valley and the West. So everyone feels like they're in the scarcity mode. Everyone feels a lot of existential risk. Everyone therefore feels like they have to work very hard to compete for um, a slice of the pie. And because labor is abundant, every piece of pie is under threat at all times. So everyone is competing right. with everyone at all times. And in order to do that, you just have to work a lot. And therefore, what the two um, most popular words on, on online last year, one was um, which translates mm. to uh, involution, which I think the closest concept in in the West would be kind of the red queen world that we talk about. We have to run just as fast just to keep up, right? Where a lot of effort goes wasted. People are working 996 because everyone else is working 996. So we just have to work this hard just to keep up. We're not innovating. We're doing this just so we stay the same as everyone. Exactly. Um, and, and The so, treadmill. Precisely. Okay. And there's there's no you know definite reward at the end of this. And therefore, when you take you know, people within this system feel a lot of frustration uh, with it. But given the fact that this is the you know set of incentives and structures that the ecosystem has has played out, is also very hard to opt out of it, right? Um, in the sense of, say, I create a new tech company that has fantastic culture, and I ensure people come in at nine or whenever they want, and they leave at five. Um, I, I'm going to just get competed out. My VCs and my, um, you know, uh, employees might think I'm not trying hard enough, and then you know, I, I won't be able to stay competitive in this market. So I've seen it happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Baidu. I mean, I think part of the, the problem was that uh, after Google pulled out, Baidu got a bit complacent. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was mm-hmm. a really nice place to work yes. during that time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, played a lot of ping pong. Yes. Uh, there was, <laughs> you know, there were nap rooms. There was a lot of, I mean, it was great. Everyone was in a, in a fine, fine mood all the time until they weren't. Yeah, and I think Baidu is actually the the poster child of the horror story of like you know that this is what happens when you get complacent and you rest on your laurels. Right, you, you go by that. No, way. I I completely agree. Right, so uh, so I think. Although some... I'm I'm glad I was there during the fat years. <laughs> it's a good time to be. So yeah. uh, speaking of Baidu, I mean Baidu is no longer counted among them, but there were or there still are some mega companies uh, in the respective ecosystems of of both the United States and and China here. In the United States, of course, we have Fang. Uh, in China, it used to be BAT. Now it's just Tencent and Ali. Mm-hmm. And you know, the second tier of up and comers, they're not so small. ByteDance, Meituan, mm-hmm. Didi, mm-hmm. Uh, these other you know gigantic companies. What roles do they play in each ecosystem? Are they analogous to each other? Uh, if if you had to just sort of give a, a just sort of a quick explainer to somebody who's a neophyte, are can we think of them analogously to? 
you know, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google? Oh, the great uh, question. Um, I would say yes, but you would be, but but I, I think that's just to get your head around the framework. And then once you do that, then it's, it's good to move yourself out of that framework very quickly, because I think you are mm-hmm. then limited by the metaphors that you give yourself, right? Um, so, you know, to start off the bat, you... Alibaba in China is probably the most analogous to Amazon. Um, so they are both e-commerce, large e-commerce platforms um, that you can right. buy a lot of things on. Uh, and Tencent would probably be most analogous to Facebook because they're both providing large communication networks between um, friends, between groups and Tencent's kind of flagship product is WeChat, um, where it also has Facebook-like properties in the, in the form of moments. But even in those, uh, I, I guess the Amazon to Ali comparison is probably the most apt because Amazon's also moved into media as as has Alibaba. Amazon also has web services um, as well as logistics, sure. et cetera. So I think that's the most apt comparison. But I think everything else then falls, falls apart instantly. Very yeah. quickly, right? Because Tencent doesn't yeah, make yeah. its money through advertising. Tencent makes its money through games. And it right. makes its, um, and it's actually a huge investment firm disguised as a, as a gaming company. That's right. Um, that's right. So which is a very different way. And, and you would never describe Facebook as that. Um, and when you go into the other players, then you know, to complicate things, you know, you have Pinduoduo and JD, and Pinduoduo would be, you know, there isn't a there isn't analogy. a comparison, right? So right, right. you know, it would be kind of like if Amazon had like uh, a group of relatively price conscious folks, they would be on Pinduoduo, and you know, it's for produce. So, um, you know, I, I think shortly when I try to describe it, I would just say maybe start off with the framing of this is what China is and, um, you know, Pinduoduo and JD then serves different aspects of that market. As pertaining to what we are saying earlier, as we get to the end of installation curve, we, um, you know, platforms then gradually specialize. And what we're seeing now is, you know, the last pockets of opportunity has been in the more traditionally underserved markets in the consumer space, which has been the rural and poorer population. And that's where Pinduoduo is, you know, very much in its element. And in terms of Kuaishou and ByteDance, um, yeah, ByteDance, you know, they they are they are their own TikTok. You know, they they, they are sure. their TikTok. So they've kind of created that <laughs> that format. So hopefully that needs no introduction. But again, that analogy falls really short because then you go into ByteDance and they are a super app factory. They make yeah. Seemingly every app under the sun, they do education apps, they do news apps, they do gaming apps, they do other forms of short video apps, they do a lot of SaaS products. You know, anything that is hot, you should be betting that ByteDance has some sort of internal team working on it and they are pushing that out and testing it. So, you know, that's but, right. That's right. so again, there's again no no real equivalent for that in the West. Um, and, you know, Meituan, I um, have heard people Again, just, no real, no, I mean, no, it's like Instacart. No. And, and all the food delivery companies. Instacart, DoorDash, uh, Yelp. Um, yeah, throw yeah. them all together. Put, put them all together. But then, you know, yeah. you've got... you also got hotel services. Uber and right, Fandango. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can also pay during it. So I think I think to try to... Try to um, li- <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's, yeah, there, there, there's so many elements. So I think the way I would... I think to try to describe Meituan, I would even just, you know, intro the, the labels we typically have for the Western tech and sort of just say Meituan is trying to be the single source of 
offline to online and online to offline service provider. So anything you right. But even that O2O is something is a concept you then have to go and explain to most <laughs> precisely, Americans. precisely. So, so again, that. this is why I think I come to this like my initial proposition, which is that this exactly. is a parallel world. This is not a um, you know neither ahead nor behind. I think you have to really start off with a very different set of premise and see you know if you had different starting conditions, if you had different um, user preferences and, and different capacity, and, and you regroup the functionalities that we've seen, how would they look now in different forms? And I think that's what you see in Chinese tech. But, you know, these gigantic, uh, you know, gorillas in in the simian cage or whatever, um, surrounded mm. by all the monkeys, they do serve similar purposes. And I mean, one is that they're the places where a lot of people just sort of cut their teeth as mm-hmm. product managers before they go out to start their own companies. I mean, that's, it's, it's a kind of standard story. Uh, the old dream team, you have like a ex Baidu engineer, you have an operations person from Ollie, and you have a product manager from Tencent, and you're good. Um, the uh, the other the other thing is they're they're both sort of the exit for so many startups, right? So many startups end up selling just as they do sell to Fang. They also, you know, in in the the sort of BAT and TMD um, ecosystem. I mean, you might know this better than me, but my initial understanding was that both of uh, Alibaba and Tencent are definitely not as acquisitive as the traditional um, Western counterparts. So Google and Facebook, I think, are way more acquisitive in certain spaces than Tencent and, and well, Alibaba. They had their heyday, though. For mm, I mean, okay. in the period between about 2012 and 2015 or 16, they were snapping up companies left and right. Okay. And they were doing a lot of foreign acquisitions as well, mm. Tencent mm. and Ollie, and they didn't always make sense. But uh, another reason that Baidu sort of ended up losing is they were just very slow in, in, yes. in terms of their acquisitiveness. Yes, the uh, anyway. the, the joke is if, if Baidu got onto the scene, then then that scene is basically it's over. too late. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> I know that joke. I knew that was there. <laughs> so, so um, you you have a lot of other stuff in in your various letters that mm. that you talk about you know like fandoms and maybe we don't have time to get into that but I have a couple of questions that I really want to put to you and I, I maybe we can end with with this but it's it's so interesting to me um, these are things that I just do not know the answers to but I I've seen uh, a lot of people attempt answers I'm, I'm I'm really curious what you think why do all Chinese apps seem to become these Swiss Army knife apps these super apps I mean you know where it's like you know, the app doesn't just want to show me sort of how to get where I'm going. It also wants to offer me a, a, a discount and, mm-hmm. you know, allow me to, you know, pre-order my whatever and make me a microcredit loan while we're at it. Yeah. So I think this comes back again from a lot of our starting conditions that we talked about just now where because everyone is hyper competitive at all times with each other. The reality is that the single most focus for every single apps is to own the user. And to own the user means you want the user to be using your functionality um, and your app for as long as possible. And therefore, to do that, um, you know, you have to sort of provide everything they might want from top of the funnel discovery to consideration of the various things they could be looking at across platforms all the way to checkout and to payment um, and and also to you know put, and once you've got the payment why not offer them financial products since you have the information as well and right. I think it's it's again this kind of funny interesting phenomenon right so because 
it's hard to say who started this trend, but once two players did this trend, then it would be dumb for everyone else not to follow. And I think here is something else I will, um, you know, surface as, as well as kind of one of the uh, initial starting conditions of the Chinese tech ecosystem, which, you know, is very much inspired by a comment on by Eugene Wei when uh, he mentioned on one of his trips to China, and he was talking to Chinese executives, the attitude is that if a competitor comes out with a good feature and we haven't copied it in two weeks, that means we're incompetent. And I definitely see that <laughs> mentality here. Copying is not shameful at all. It's, no, no, you know, it's, 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 it's seen as, actually, I'm adopting a de-risk business model that I know has worked elsewhere. I would be dumb not to do it. You know, like I'm saving my team time resources in terms of new product development, I should just copy everything that has worked in my competitor with my competitors. Uh, and so and I they think, say the Chinese are the ones that are obsessed with face. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think no, I seriously. Think, um, yeah. the, well, but this, this, this yeah. business of, of, you know, doing what your competitor does, jumping mm -hmm. into the same space, yeah. uh, uh, copying whatever feature they've introduced as quickly as possible. Yes. That has another manifestation too. I mean, this is the second question that I really wanted to ask you. Why do Chinese venture investors, strategic investors, entrepreneurs all rush into the same areas and you know create this frenzied land grab competition mm. in every space? I mean, I have I've worked in the internet or around the internet in China from '99 all the way until I left in 2016. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've seen the portal craze, yes. yeah. uh, the ringtones and screen graphics craze back in the days of you know WAP uh, for mobile value added services. Uh, uh, auction-based e-commerce craze, the microblogs craze, the user-generated video craze, you know, all those YouTube, you know, Tudo and Yoku, all those, the millions of clones of those, the the thousand Groupon clone war, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the O2O craze where everyone yes. was doing every O2O service. Mm -hmm. uh, bike sharing, that was another one. <laughs> <laughs> and then live streaming right out on the heels of that. And, mm -hmm. and now we're into this clubhouse clone yeah. craze. I mean, mm -hmm. what gives? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I I frame them as battle royales. You know, they can. You, yeah. you have a whole hundreds of uh, these uh, startup folks springing up overnight, and they get into very bloody fights, and there can only be one left. And it's it's definitely battle royale situations. But to answer your question, why is this um, the case? First of all, I think it's really interesting that even from a uh, language framing perspective, and you know, I'm very much of the of the view that the metaphors we live by shape the way we see the world. China has a set of language to describe this. So, the a word which has no relative equivalence in English is the concept of funkol. So, this, um, you know, you're, mm -hmm. you're standing at the mouth of of the wind, so and the wind, the wind is tunnel, yeah. the wind tunnel, right? And so that's what people are conceptually framing as so what is the fun call for for this year what is what is really hot this year because another framing people have is um when uh, when a pig stands in front of a fun call even a pig can fly don't <laughs> so so that's a very popular thinking of i don't need to be good as much as I need to get in front of the right opportunity. Right, and I right. think perhaps that, you know, I'm, I'm 
getting a bit more philosophical here, and so this is my own view, I think it comes down to a difference in the way we conceptualize the world and ourselves within it between the East and the West. In the West, it's built on this, you know, enlightenment reasoning foundation where it's very much the individual and I need to be authentic to myself. And, you know, I, I, I've, I embody these higher values that I manifest through my creation. Whereas, you know, maybe in China, it's much more of a, you know, societal relationship. I am part of a thing that is bigger than myself and I can be a part of it. I, I, I myself am a manifestation of it, but I myself am not the entirety of it. And I think with that framing, people are much more willing, therefore, to sort of say, hey, you know, all of us are just buoyanted on the sea of um, of outrageous fortune and we need to just find the <laughs> wave that catches us right and so i i definitely feel that is um there's more willingness to consider you know it, re- it really is the market and the market timing that makes a billionaire versus uh, a pauper and everyone is therefore very attuned to what is the next opportunity and therefore when there is um a potential opportunity that arises so live streaming e-commerce last year group uh community group buying then a whole host of entrepreneurs are really happy to you know try to make a quick buck um by setting up a startup and you know this is also deeply enabled by vcs who think the same way and they think you know um I, I can't miss out on this deal that I've, I've got so much fear of missing out FOMO going that I must invest um, just in the off chance that this turns out to be a, a hundred hundred X return. So then all the VCs get in and they found all of these startups. And then you just, you just see this trend manifesting overall <laughs> uh, overnight, a hundred startups spring up and then yeah, they, they fight to the death for, yeah, for whatever it is. Contend. Exactly. My, uh, yeah, God, I, I, I just have a knack for never finding the phone call. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can promise you where there isn't one. Okay. You know, English <clears throat> yeah. language uh, media focused on China is not ever going to be a phone call. <laughs> Not yet, not yet, not yet, Kaiser. Well, Lillian, I have about a million other questions I, I would love to, to ask you, but we're going to have to save it for another time, mm-hmm. uh, which I I, can't, I really look forward to already because mm-hmm. I have some good meaty questions. Of, I I know these are just the sort that you'll really enjoy talking about. So uh, uh, let's let's invite you back on the show again another oh, time. But for now, I want to just thank you for for just such a fun conversation. That was a <laughs> What a what a great what a great set of perspectives you have. I really uh, look forward to meeting you in person and, and uh, talking through a bunch of this stuff because I can see that you know we approach a lot of this in similar ways. Oh, that's so flattering to hear, Kaiser. Thank you so much. Uh, let's move on now first to recommendations. But first, a quick reminder that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like the work we do with the podcast, the very best thing you can do to support us is to subscribe to SubChina Access, which is of course our daily email newsletter. It's got all the latest news from China, which is expertly winnowed down uh, to a manageable read from hundreds of different news sources. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to the other shows in our network. Um, Flag a couple of things. Our second season of Strangers in China, uh, which has started up again, is uh, I think three episodes into season two. Uh, It's it's just great. It's just unbelievable. Uh, Check it out. Also, check out You Can Learn Chinese, which is a podcast about tips and techniques and mindsets and methods for learning this very difficult but oh so rewarding language so you can learn how to say even a pig can fly if you put himself in front of a wind tunnel 
And of course, uh, don't forget the stalwarts in the network like the fantastic Tech Buzz China with Ray Ma and Ying Lu, which is just all about, for those of you who've listened all the way through this one, clearly you are interested in technology. And so you won't want to miss that podcast. On to recommendations. Lillian, what do you have for us? So I would like to recommend a book called But What If We're Wrong by Chuck Klosterman, which is Mm. a book um, written by a music critic that I read um, last year, which actually shaped a lot of my thoughts about how to see the future. And it, the the guy takes a very interesting perspective, which is, you know, it's 100 years from now, and we're looking back at what, at, at today and our predictions of today. And then it tries to almost do this exercise of like, you know, us, we were wrong about so many things we predicted, but why were we wrong? And right. I, I, I thought that was a very interesting perspective because it, it, it makes you um, go back and look at, hey, when we look at the early 19th century, what were their predictions? Why did they get wrong? Uh, and, you know, what are our potential fallacies that we are committing ourselves? And, and for me, one of the biggest takeaway from reading that book was, you know, when considering any question that I'm thinking, especially from the f- for the future, I always assume that the information we currently have is all the information that will ever be available. And I think that uh-huh. is a mental fallacy that all of us commit. And, yeah, yeah. You, know, you know, something that I then try to push myself is, you know, what are the unknown informations that I would need to, that would need to arise for me to drastically change my opinion on something. Um, and so that I, I found that a really interesting addition to my mental models that I use on a regular basis. And I do suggest it to readers as a way to augment their thinking as well. Well, I've just bought it. So wow. I Great. look forward to talking about it with you uh, in the future. Although, you know, we could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So many unknown informations. I'm going to recommend something from the past. Uh, I've been, uh, not too long ago, uh, a guest on the show, Paul here, had talked about you know rereading Dickens, or he reads Dickens a lot. When, and I'd gone back and I, I, I uh, read uh, A Tale of Two Cities again, which I just forgot how great that was. But um, I've been sort of on a kick of reading a lot of 19th century stuff. And so I decided to go back and reread Jane Austen, uh, just Pride and Prejudice. I an audio book. Uh, it's just been, it's great. Uh, the, the reader is fantastic. Uh, this particular edition that I have, I, I'm sorry, I don't have her name in front of me right now, but she's really good. Uh, I had just forgotten how sly and how wickedly funny uh, Jane Austen is. Uh, there's so much subtle comedy that's just worked into it, and, and it really stands up. I mean, it was written in the, I think the 1810s or something, and it, it really stands the test of time. Um, you know, 200 years later, it's just fantastic. I, I um, had recommended a couple of years ago rereading, you know, a much later novel, but one that's still probably my favorite novel, uh, Middlemarch by George Eliot. Uh, a couple of years on the show, I talked about that, and it's for the same reasons. I just can't, I can't get enough of this. Uh, it's just their understanding of human psychology just seems to exceed what I typically encounter these days in in writing. It's just just a more subtle. A grasp of of the way humans actually interact, all their pettiness and all that. I mean, it's just great. It's fantastic. Uh, highly recommend it. Lillian, once again, wow, what a fun what a fun conversation. I could keep going. Oh, thank you, guys. It was incredibly fun on my end as well. All right. Well, we look forward to having you back on. Thank you so much. Great. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.